Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. And I'm Madhavi Peters, also known as The Tropicalist. Michael Horowitz, welcome to the Reorient Podcast. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, we're really glad to have you. Um, so, Michael, I've known you for a number of years and find you have a lot of interesting, uh, particularly interesting areas of expertise and obviously also a great overview given your role as the director of the Perry House, Global House at Penn, uh, where you looking at a broad range of international and global issues. So, Perfectly all right. Uh, thank, well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and I don't know. I mean, ever since I was in high school, I was interested in issues surrounding international security. And, you know, those were the kinds of things when I was when I was taking classes in high school that I thought were really interesting and that I, I then, you know, continued to think were interesting in, in college. And I spent time working in Washington uh, after college before uh, before going to get a Ph.D., and happened to finish my uh, happened to finish my PhD in political science, kind of right as right after the invasion of Iraq, a couple of years after, when a lot of universities had you know decided to you know make some investments in trying to to find scholars that could help them understand you know what was going on in the world now you know after nine eleven after the invasion of Iraq and thinking about questions about U.S. foreign policy and the future of war and. You know that's where, and I was you know fortunate enough to be to be hired at Penn, and have worked there on and off ever since with some stints in the in the Defense Department, and but my my passion has always been doing research that connects the academic world to the policy world. So when Perry Worldhouse opened in 2016, I, I decided it was sort of time for me to, I thought I should put my time where my mouth was essentially, and not only capture that notion of connecting academia and, and the policy world in my own research and my own actions, but but start to take a role that could help uh, others sort of on campus more broadly do that as well. And then I just became director uh, last year. Well, that's great. So let's talk a little bit more. I mean, I guess, what have you learned? I mean, you, you gave the context of the, um, uh, I guess you could say the, uh, when you refer to the invasion of Iraq, I presume you're referring to the first Gulf War? Sorry, by the invasion, I, I mean 2003. I mean, I remember both. The, the okay. you know, what I would probably call the first Gulf War, the Persian Gulf War, you know, Operation Desert, you know, Shield and Storm. You know, I was in, I was actually in middle school when those happened. And I remember watching CNN with my parents and watching these, these incre- this incredible footage of, of what we now think of as smart bombs or smart munitions, you know, hitting hitting right. buildings and thinking that that was just just ex- I mean it was extraordinary uh, and I mean obviously you know destructive. Well, that we were watching it in in real time as well, but, right? And that we could watch it. I mean, you know, all all of those elements coming together in the context of uh, of that particular conflict and in the role that the 24 hour news cycle played and in, in bringing that conflict to the world, right. which is incredible. And it, it really sort of stoked my interest in some of those topics. Okay. Uh, okay. So just, yes. Yeah, so, so you had the, the Persian Gulf war, the first Gulf war, and then you had the second Gulf war, which is operation desert shield around the 2003 uh, period. So what would you say sort of the lessons that you've 
looking at U.S. policy, uh, you know, foreign policy and military policy in the Middle East in the context of Iraq, what have you say have been some of the key lessons that you've taken away that you think uh, policymakers should take away as well? I mean, I, I think one of the big lessons of the invasion of Iraq in 2003 was how how much the I would say American government, and I would include both uh, the military and and most of the civilian government as well, underestimated the the challenge, you know, not of toppling Saddam Hussein's regime, but of of working to rebuild Iraq afterwards. And and that's something that we've seen in Afghanistan. It's something that we've seen in other places as, as well. The I mean, not that not that the invasion part is easy. But, you know, the American military is the best in the world. It's, it's it, you know, incredible, the combination of the combination of American soldiers, American military technology, sort of doctrine, training, et cetera. But after the invasion, that raises the question of what happens next. And the answer is as much about politics as, as anything else. And that's something that the U.S. really had to grapple with after the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq in a way that the U.S. really hadn't thought about since the Vietnam War. And it took, it took years to even figure out the basics. And, you know, even today, those, those issues are still a challenge, I think, even as the American military and the national security establishment have now, I think, pivoted, you know, pretty hard in the last few years towards thinking more about what we used to call the Asia-Pacific and we now call the Indo-Pacific. If I recall correctly, President W. Bush, when he was um, perhaps when he was during the campaign and maybe after he was elected, he really said explicitly that we're not in the nation building business. And and I, that's what my memory was. And he the idea was U.S. Uh, military or, or U.S. government doesn't want to be involved in, you know, effectively occupying or being, you know, sort of part of uh, another country's development process because, you know, it brings in all sorts of potential problems and challenges, which is sort of exactly what we saw in Iraq when uh, we effectively toppled the Saddam Hussein regime and then um, gutted the uh, Ba'athist party that was governing uh, under Saddam Hussein. And then we were left, in a sense, the United States um, and to some and its allies sort of holding the bag or being responsible for like, okay, now it's yours. Uh, you broke it. Now you rebuild it. And there was a long period of civil unrest, of, you know, suicide bombings, of, of sort of violence and, and, and with, with, I'm sure, some pockets of success as well. But I'm just curious when you had that sort of clear statement under President W. Bush and then effectively something similar under Obama when he was really talking about the United States focusing more at home. I can't remember the term he used, but uh, the idea was that the U.S. was going to be less active internationally. Um, yet either under Obama, you had uh, this regime change in Libya and you had the um, Jasmine Revolution sort of around various countries in the Middle East where the U.S. ended up not necessarily nation building, but sort of getting involved in new regimes. So can you sort of from your perspective explain the at least the apparent contradiction between some of what the, the U.S. political leaders say, especially the president, and then what seems to be, you know, U.S. 
military involvement and political involvement in in new governments uh, in various places in the world, but particularly the Middle East. I think there's a real challenge when you're the most powerful country in the world and you have interests around the world and in right-sizing or matching ambitions to what Amer- the American people will support and what the and what seems smart from a national security perspective. And I, I think in a variety of cases around the world, the initial instinct has been, all right, there's a there are people suffering in, in a place, there is a, a you know a terrible leader in a place that might do dangerous things. And for one reason or another, it makes sense to use military force. But then you get to the point right afterwards and in, in the question of what happens next. And even though uh, often it can be politically challenging, it's proven really difficult for American political leaders and the American military and you know, political leaders of both parties to disengage, to you know, make the call that, all right, like now we're going to walk away. The United States has been in Afghanistan now for, for 20 years. And, you know, President Biden is thinking about what American strategy should should look like. And if there was an easy answer, Jesse, we, we would have done it already. And, you know, one of the real incredible things about, I think, the Trump administration was, you know, just how clearly Donald Trump, you know, even in comparison to that, that statement from Bush about not liking nation building or, or whatever sort of statement from Obama, the clear sort of loathing that Trump had for the idea of American military forces, you know, deployed in, in these sort of less, I would say like less clearly like destroying things kinds of missions. And, and yet the U.S. stayed in Afghanistan. And it just shows how, how sticky these operations can be, how challenging they are. Well, on that note, how- just to interrupt, I recall when there was some announcement about pulling troops out of Afghanistan, there was a huge outcry uh, in the New York Times and maybe the Washington, D.C. policy establishment. I mean, speak about sticky, they definitely, there were very loud voices saying uh, very clearly, like, pulling out of Afghanistan would be very dangerous. Uh, that, that's uh, when, that, when there was talk about uh, that sort of ending that uh, mission. I think the fear has been, especially since the September 11th tax in, in any of these places, whether you're talking about Afghanistan, Libya, uh, Iraq, uh, elsewhere, the fear has always been that the withdrawal of the complete withdrawal, let me say the complete withdrawal of the American military without a, an obvious, an obviously, you know, very comp, um, an obviously very competent government filling in could end up becoming a safe haven for Al-Qaeda, for ISIS, for whatever happens next, in a way that could metastasize threats to the American people and risk more attacks in the American homeland. And so the risk calculus thus has been, even though it might seem as, it, it seemed like, you know, progress is, you know, always just around the corner and, and not quite happening, that's better to stay than to create a vacuum that could be filled by militant groups that that you know seek to do harm to the United States. So I guess I mean maybe the question is on these policies, on these sort of this uh, stickiness of U.S. military 
operations, whatever activities overseas, is is that driven more by whichever administration, democratically elected administration is in office, or is it really driven more by the DC policy establishment, which is you could say is more or less permanent and, and maybe has, you know, a longer a longer horizon and a different sort of decision-making framework than, uh, you know, you'd, uh, an administration which may just be in office for four years? I think there's always a tension between a, between the polit- a political administration and career civil servants that might have different perceptions of what policy should look like. And, you know, in some cases might seek to outlast uh, a particular administration. And, you know, there, there are perfectly good examples of that, you know, over the decades in, in both political, in both political parties. But I think this is not a case of where the the Washington, D.C., where the foreign policy establishment believes one thing and the political parties believe another thing. I I think it's a case where political elites in both in both parties tend to believe things that are not not that different. I mean, think about, you know, what Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio say in the Republican um, party, you know, don't were, were, you know, certainly at least until the election of Donald Trump were, were not. Uh, you know, we're, we're strong supporters of American military deployments abroad and American engagement in, in all of these places, you know, as were, you know, many on the, on the, on the democratic side, I think in both parties, you see, you know, both those that are strong supporters of American military engagement and, you know, in, in a variety of these kinds of locations, you know, thinking about the Middle East in particular here and those that they you don't know, favor a more, you know, or pro, a, a more sort of restrained, you know, more set back, more selective uh, kind of approach. I think it's not, I don't think it's the foreign policy establishment per se. I think it's that political elites in both parties actually have, have tended to buy those arguments. That makes sense to me, but I guess I would might bring up the argument, let's say Obama, he was one of the few senators, I believe, who voted against the, the Iraq war. Um, Operation Desert Storm, and you know, again, sort of did campaign on this idea that the U.S. is getting out of this, and yet, you know, uh, supported the regime change in Libya, and then sort of the um, the whole Jasmine Revolution happened under his watch. So he didn't seem to really follow through, and I think a lot of his ardent supporters were very disappointed that he didn't campaign against uh, sort of U.S. military involvement in in the Middle East, in particular. I think part of that actually has to do with the the information that it, administrations have when they get into right. office. You know, you you campaign on one thing, you 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 know, you think one thing, you have you have access to certain information and then you you get into office and you're sitting in the chair and you know these things are complicated for a reason and I I think that's something that a lot happened to a lot of administrations where you 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 come in campaigning on something. And it turns out that, I mean, I don't know what the information was, but it turns out that whatever, you know, classified information or additional context that you get, mm. whether from the joint chiefs or from, you know, others in the national security establishment suggest that, that, you know, perhaps maybe those campaign promises need to be modulated a little bit. Mm. And, you know, in, but in, I also think that there's a difference between and there, there's some academic research on this between the way that leaders feel about wars going on when they get into office versus things that might start when they're in office. Sure. And that if if something's already ongoing and you get into office, essentially, you know, leaders, te- you know, traditionally tend to feel less ownership over it. 
than something that maybe say when there's a crisis on their watch. Right. And now a President Biden is especially interesting on this front because he's both coming into office with these wars ongoing, but also both from his career as a senator and then as vice president, you know, also, you know, made a number of, of calls over the years that you know, contributed to, you know, important American foreign policy choices. Well, I want to get into to the Biden administration uh, in just a minute, but I'd like to, before we do that, just given we're, our focus is a lot on Asia, uh, my, our, our podcast, and um, like to discuss a little bit the Obama pivot to Asia, um, which was announced, um, um, gosh, I believe it was during his second administration. Um, and the idea of the pivot to Asia was, I think, putting more U.S. military assets in the region, getting more engaged in the context of China's uh, military and, and political expansion in the Asia region. So could you share your thoughts on on the Asian pivot and, and its significance and to what extent that policy continued into the Trump administration and might continue going forward in the Biden administration? Absolutely. The So the pivot to Asia started at the end of Obama's first term. And the idea was that the United States had invested a lot since the September 11th attacks in the Middle East, had you know massive traditional investments in Europe, but that the future of, of economic and military security, you know, was was in the Asia Pacific. And so the notion was the United States needed to pivot uh, militarily, uh, economically, uh, diplomatically to the region we then called the, the Asia Pacific. But it it led to some challenges from the beginning, in part because of the name, in that you know, from the perspective of those in the Asia Pacific and especially countries that wanted more American involvement, you know, they viewed this as, you know, what they'd been asking for uh, for years. But for those in the Middle East and Europe, they're like, wait a second. So you're pivoting away from mm-hmm. us. So you actually saw a, a bit of a rebrand in Obama's second term of the pivot to to be called the rebalance with the idea that the U.S. was not going to be leaving the Middle East and Europe. Instead, it was going to be you know, adding more in the, in the Asia Pacific. And there were a number of elements of that. You know, e- economically, of course, there was the, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which then, uh, of course, the U.S. didn't end up going forward with, uh, as well as a number of American uh, military deployments, uh, diplomatic engagements, and you know, other activities designed to increase American you know, focus and a posture uh, throughout the region. The, one of the interesting things I, I think about, about Asia policy over the last 25 years is that even as American politics has gotten more polarized, the policy toward what was then the Asia Pacific, what we now call the Indo-Pacific, has been relatively more bipartisan. You, know, you certainly have partisan squabbles about China policy, but you had, I, I think, a, a, certainly compared to other regions, a remarkable degree of consistency between what we saw in the Obama administration and then, and certainly, you know, in, in the uh, you know late first term of the Obama administration, and then you know some of the elements of what we saw out of the uh, out of the Trump administration, like like tweets and rhetoric aside. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast. To access the entire podcast and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. 
That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com. <laughs>